0: I recommend highly that whatever job a person takes, low, high, in between, prestigious, lack of prestige, if you do the best you can, you put in your time. You're honest, you're capable, and you're curious. Curious is a good thing. You wanna learn as you go. And if you're curious, you'll see other opportunities, and you'll figure out who can help you get those opportunities. That's the best advice I've ever received. If you'll do your best and take good care of the company, the company will take care of you. And I've been with this company, as you noted, for some 30 plus years. In this last round of cuts, I would have expected that I would have been one of the ones that the management came to and said, Paul, don't you think it's time for you to go do something else? Something like go to the next phase of life? Actually, what happened was my boss came to me and he said, Look, I need you. Um, I've got all sorts of young, enthusiastic people, and I want to keep them on staff. But I need help to give them guidance, and I need help with a stable, head, stable, steady hands. Um, I took a pay cut, but I've stayed.
1: Paul Neff is a regional sales director based in Singapore for a U.S. aerospace company. He has 39 years of experience in the aviation industry. He has held um, leadership positions in the Asia regional business, and he is business fluent in Mandarin Chinese when he first um, joined the aerospace industry. Um, He was assigned as the first business representative in Greater China for his company. Paul, I'm so glad to have you on this podcast where we can talk about uh, the careers of millennials, especially when it comes to the aviation industry.
0: Thank you, Andrew. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Paul. Why did you tell us a little bit more about uh, yourself uh, based on uh, this, based on the history that you have? Because you've been in the industry for uh, for a long time, and uh, also tell us what what do you think about the current situation uh, right now, when the coronavirus has basically brought the whole uh, aviation industry to a standstill. Well, uh,
0: that's that's a lot to cover, Andrew. The, Uh, My background, uh, I grew up in the farmlands of southern Idaho, which is in the northwestern part of the United States. Never dreamed that I would either live or work in Asia, let alone in aviation. Uh, When I finished uh, graduate school, uh, I was recruited by the U.S. government for an intelligence position. And due to my family background, I wasn't able to pass the uh, security clearance. So um, I went back to graduate school and got a a degree in international business. When I finished that, I expected to go into the banking industry. I have a degree in finance, in international finance. But as it turned out, uh, the banks didn't offer me nearly as much money as my current company, my current employer offered me. At the time, I was married with two small children and was desperate to go out and make some money and make a mark in the world, so I joined the company that I currently work for. We've been acquired twice, uh, so the names are no longer relevant. The, names, the name that it was is no longer the name that it is. But I have a, a background as a result of this uh, employment with my current company in uh, primarily airborne equipment. So things that go on airplanes, not airplanes themselves. But in the process of understanding what goes on the airplanes and what they do and how the airplanes fly, I've learned a lot about airplanes and airlines and uh, airplane uh, repair and overhaul uh, centers, as well as uh, airplane manufacturing. Uh, You mentioned that I was my company's first representative for Greater China. Uh, About 12 years ago, I was called back to work specifically in China to work on the then, what was called the big airplane project, the uh, Comac C919. So I have some aircraft OEM uh, business experience. I have a lot of airline experience. And the current uh, situation that we're facing really is a challenge more for the airlines. And as a result of the challenges for the airlines, for the aircraft manufacturers and the airborne equipment manufacturers, such as my company. Um, In the aviation business generally, aircraft manufacturers and airborne equipment manufacturers make more money on not manufacturing but repairing and overhauling and maintaining the equipment that we sell. Therefore, if airplanes aren't flying, we're in a very large world of hurt because we don't have as much money coming in. And if airplanes aren't flying, airplanes are not being delivered to the airlines. And so, New airplane deliveries, new equipment for airplane deliveries, and the repair and overhaul of equipment for aircraft takes a a huge, huge bite. So the circumstances that we're facing now are, for example, uh, Singapore Airlines and Cathay Pacific, who are two of the largest uh, single-operation airlines in Asia-Pacific, have grounded more than 90% of their aircraft. They're flying some freighters. They're flying some cargo charters, But in terms of passenger traffic, because of the closure of borders, because of the the coronavirus concerns that nation states have, and that passengers have about sitting close to somebody who, who may be from anywhere and the potential of transmitting the virus to them, uh, has essentially locked down the airline uh, passenger carrying experience. There are some airplanes that are flying, carrying passengers, but they are quite limited in number. Therefore, for Singapore and Hong Kong, where all of the traffic is essentially international traffic, there's not much flying going on. In larger entities such as the United States, certain areas of Europe, in China, in Japan, in Vietnam, places that have even though they may have closed borders, uh, domestic traffic is still flying and so long as they can control their uh, coronavirus concerns and risks Airplanes are operating relatively um, normal. Now, normal means anywhere between 50 and 70, and 80% of of the airplanes are flying, but they're flying at relatively low uh, capacity in terms of passenger loadings. So, there may be 50, 60% of the passengers' seats on an airplane that are being filled at any one point in time. And you've seen what have, what's happened as well in places like New Zealand and Australia, where even though they do have a domestic airline industry, when they start having a second or a third wave of coronavirus infections, um, one state will close down, one region of the country will close down. And the next thing you know, the airlines are taking a hit, even in the domestic market. So in terms of what is going on now and what's affecting us all, and what are we, what do we think is going to come next i don't know that any of us know i think the best thing that that all of us can do is look to continue to service the things that need to be serviced and take care of the business that needs to to be taken care of now i just watched a, a short uh, channel news asia video about aircraft maintenance while airplanes are down you know when when airplanes are not flying it's not that they don't need maintenance they do need maintenance. The engines have to be turned. They have to be started. They have to be lubricated. Moving parts on the airplane have to be kept corrosion-free. Um, you want to keep insects out of the turbo, out of the out of the the um, the sensors uh, and rodents that that may walk by and say, "Oh, this is a nice place to nest." Uh, birds need to be kept out of the engines and out of the airframes and out of the places in the airplanes where there are holes or where there are other places that where they can build nests. And so there's a lot of work that's being done to keep the airplanes ready to come back to fly. And therefore the airlines have a significant amount of, of cost that they're encountering, even though they don't have a lot of revenue throwing in, flowing in. So it's a, it's a very dicey, very, uh, scary sort of situation we're all in right now. Mm-hmm. My company itself has taken about, um, In terms of our business operations we've cut about 45 to 50 percent of our of our actual staff that are working the the airline industry type of operations and we're we're doing a controlled flow through our shops so our workshops even though there is work to be done we're being very careful about putting too much in and uh and then ending up with gaps where we have maybe weeks or months where we don't have enough work to be done. So we're watching the flow very carefully. That's coming from those airlines that are flying, or from the airlines that have to do certain types of maintenance work, which affect our equipment. Which means that we are thereby kept busy to some
1: to some level. And what, what would you what would you advise um, young people? Who have a passion for the aviation industry, right? whether they want to be a pilot or whether they want to be an engineer repair to repair airplanes, um, they probably have been studying aerospace uh, or, or learning how to be a pilot for several years and then coronavirus happened this year. Um, what would you advise them in terms of their career aspirations? Um, well, th- there are two or three things that I think all
0: of us need to remember about the airline industry. One, it's a cyclical business. Uh, Just as it has ebbs and flows, there will be highs and lows. And as a result of that, um, if you come into the industry during one of the down periods, it's a tough place to get into. But the reassurance is that there will be an upsurge. People need to travel. Goods need to be shipped. um, And the, the type of things that, even though... We're on Zoom today, but even though we can um, talk to each other in a virtual world, I think that there is, in fact, no complete replacement for the face-to-face doing of business, the transacting of business, the transacting of goods and services needs the airline industry. So the first thing to remember is that even though we are in a terrible situation right now, that won't last forever. And in fact there are all sorts of pundits to talk about six years three years two years one year who knows when it's going to come back up but if I were a young person today that's looking to come into the industry I would actually take heart that as this circumstance clears itself um, as the the people that have taken been taken off of the employment roles of the air, of the airlines um, either seek to maintain their employment elsewhere, there will be opportunities for young folks to join the industry, to learn from the ground up. And as we recover from this, this is something we've never had to deal with before. As we recover from this, my sense is that there will be lots of opportunities for all of us, whether it be pilots, engineers, maintenance folks, people that work behind the counters at the airlines and the the airports, people that work in the IT departments, of the, air, of the airlines, including, you know, we're, we're all looking at trying to figure out how to do things smarter and do things better. So young folks that have a good education, particularly an education that gives them a quantifiable approach to life. Big data solutions are becoming the rage in the airline industry. Being able to predict what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and what the likelihood of that is within a specific time frame. Is, uh, is a huge potential growth part of the industry. Uh, as the airlines bring airplanes back into flying, young pilots can earn their wings, can, can get themselves back into the cockpit, and then they may end up in a smaller airplane growing up into the larger airplanes. But that, that will happen with, over time, and that would happen anyway. Mm. For the, the third thing that I would, I would remind us all is that airplanes are really complex organisms they do need attention, they, need, it, you, they don't live by themselves. So engineers, maintenance folks, pilots, pilots that are educated about aerodynamics that understand how, how airplanes operate, this is the kind of person that you should be if you want to join the aviation industry because you will be called upon to use that expertise for the benefit of your eventual employer regardless of whether it's this year or next. And if you need to take a gap year and travel the world or, or travel the virtual world, uh, that's there's nothing, there's nothing that can replace ad- additional education, additional learning, additional preparation if you wanted to come into the industry. Now, if you're somebody who's young and you've been in the industry and just been laid off, my, my recommendation is that you wait your time. Uh, all of us have had periods of time where we see the industry go into the doldrums but it always comes back. And I believe that it always will. There will be new technologies, there will be new challenges for the airlines and for people that are anxious and willing and capable of meeting those challenges, there will always be a place.
1: Hmm. Let's, let's talk about uh, uh, resilience uh, on, on this topic. Like how, how do you stay uh, resilient in the face of what's possibly the worst uh, crisis in the aviation industry? Well, um,
0: there are a couple of things that are happening in spite of the, the coronavirus and the, the doldrums that the industry is in. One is because there are few of us on, fewer of us on the ground. Most of the suppliers, most of the participants in the industry have started to lay people off or put people on furlough. For those of us that are still working, there's more work and less of us doing that work. Uh, and I wouldn't say that there's more business to be had but our customers continue to have problems. They continue to have challenges. Uh, And some of the more advanced, uh, uh, some of the more, shall we say, forward-looking airlines are looking at the age of their fleets and they're saying, well, let's, uh, well, maybe we will renew these airplanes. Since the airplanes aren't so busy, now is the time where we can refurbish the galleys. We can refurbish the seats and the interiors. We can do the engine overhauls. We can do the heavy checks that need to be done whereas maybe we were going to do them in 6 months or 7 months or even next year we can take this time while the airlines airplanes are not flying to do upgrades and modifi- modifications and retrofits that we perhaps would not would not have been doing for 2 or 3 years from now there is of course the the cost factor for that but um uh, if if the airline thinks about that retrofits modifications and upgrades primarily provide normally better service at lower cost than what you have today. So if if um, we think about it, there is plenty of work to be done. And even though the stresses and the strains of what might go wrong and what may continually go wrong, I think there's still a lot of hope for and a lot of goodness associated with the things that many of the airlines are doing, both to keep the airplanes safe and ready to fly when the Upturn comes Mm. but also to take advantage of this time to retrofit and modify and and upgrade the airplanes that they
1: currently have. Uh, Okay so basically some airlines are seeing an opportunity in the crisis uh, to maintain their airplanes or upgrade their airplanes because as you say airplanes are complex devices or uh, I don't know what is it right to call them a device but they are basically very huge machines and yes, they, re- they require regular maintenance and even during the times when they are not flying you still need to maintain some sort of maintenance otherwise otherwise right you wouldn't fly as well as if you start them up again
0: yeah so let me just, just give you a quick example of that Andrew uh, from a layman's perspective um let's look at a car if, if you have a car and it sits in the garage for two, three months, you never start it, you never check, you don't undo the, the cables from the battery, um, you don't do anything to, to maintenance-proof your car. You go back out after two or three months, it's quite likely that the air in the tires will be lower than it was. You might even have flat tires. Um, the gasoline, the fuel in the tank, may well have acquired properties that it shouldn't have. It may have turned to gel. If the tank wasn't full, you're going to have some in humid environments like we have in Singapore, you're liable to have some water, some evaporation, some condensation of water in that in that, in that fuel tank. And therefore when you try to start the car, if your battery still has power and you've got it hooked up, it's quite often quite often the case that you start it up and that engine's not going to run quite right. An airplane is very much the same way if it sits and holds still for some period of time, there are thousands of moving parts on that airplane. If they aren't kept lubricated, if they aren't kept mobile, if they don't get exercised from time to time, they will seize up. Engines have hundreds of moving parts and there are valves and um, metal parts that have to be lubricated or they corrode. In an environment such as Singapore, where an airplane sits for even a few weeks, There is a possibility that corrosion will enter in. And that's why we see airplanes that are being flown from Singapore and Hong Kong, for example, to Alice Springs, to the desert in northern Australia, or in the United States to to Arizona, where it's a very dry, hot climate. The the airplane tends to deteriorate less. But even then, even in a closed-up airplane in a hot environment, the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature are different. And so, when the daytime turns to nighttime, the interior of the airplane cools, there is moisture in that air, it will condense onto the seats if you 've got leather seats or if you 've got materials there, you have to have uh, desiccants, you have to have moisture absorbing devices inside just the airplane itself, even if it 's not moving and no moving parts. those things have to be have to be cared for and so i I heard that Singapore Airlines is spending thousands of man hours every week, keeping the airplanes that are actually sitting on the ground in a, in a condition so that they can be um, rehabilitated and flown uh, when the time comes to, to refly them. So significant costs for Singapore Airlines. But at the same time, employment for aircraft engineers, maintenance folks to uh, take care of those birds while they're not flying less and a different type of role than you would have if the airplane were flying four five six sectors a day but still uh, work that needs to be done
1: All right thanks for giving me um, a 101 on how air and how important <laughs> it is to maintain our airplanes because me as a passenger I haven't sat in an airplane for a long time so can't imagine how much work goes into um, that so um, now I just want to Going, going to uh, your experience um, as a director in an in MNC um, more on what you see um, more on what are the areas that you think um, Millennials nowadays should focus on in their careers um, so why, why don't we start off with what's the best advice that you've received in your career that you would like to share I think the best advice I ever
0: received was from a guy by the name of Mike Smith. I'd just been passed over for a big promotion and um, it just wasn't meant to be. And so uh, my boss and several other leaders sat me down and basically tried to help me understand why I hadn't been chosen. But um, they put me in the in the, the mix to, to be looked at as one of the next people to be considered for promotion the next round, if you will. And um, I went through a series of interviews and there was this job which I didn't really want, but it was, a, it, was a, it was honorable work and it was an important job. And it was a significant promotion to what I'd been doing, both in terms of compensation, in terms of prestige. And I went into Mike Smith's office and I saw that he had on his, on his desk, he had my folder open. And, uh, you know, one of the things you learn when you're in business is to kind of observe and see what the guy across the table is reading. And you, you try to get a little bit of a sense of, can you read upside down? You know, maybe figuring out what he's reading and what he's taking, what he's writing in notes and that yeah. sort of stuff is something you ought to, you ought to be interested in. Mm. But he had this, he obviously had the folder open for my benefit. It was, it was away from me. He was sitting back in his desk and he had his hands sort of, you know, folded into each other and he was, he was composed. And, uh, we did maybe a three minute interview and it was, uh, it was going nowhere and I could tell it was going nowhere. And I thought, this is, this is not good. Mike was the hiring manager and, um, after about three, four minutes, he just he reached over on his desk and he full, closed my folder. And I thought, we are done. This is it. I'm, I'm not getting this one either. And he said, Paul, if you want this job, it's yours. Do you want this job? And I took a very, you know, I didn't do it, take a big physical breath, but inside of me, I took a big breath. And I thought, what do I do? I mean, I don't really want this job, but I can do this job. But in all honesty, in a year or so, I'll be bored. And um, I'll probably be looking for something else to do. So I said, Mike, no, I don't want this job. If you want me to take this job, Mike, I will take it. And I'll do the very best I can. You'll never regret hiring me and taking me to do this job. I'll work hard. I'll bring the results that you want. I am capable of doing that. I'm confident that with the people that, that you already have in place with me, uh, we can do what you want done we, and, and better." And he said, "'It's okay. I want to hire somebody else." And he said, "'I've always felt that if I'm honest with my company, And if I do the best I can, the company would take care of me. I've remembered that all these years. Um, And that was 20-some years ago. Um, But I've I've tried to maintain that posture. As I look around, as I come up for promotion, as I look at new opportunities within the the company, I try not to get so that I take anything so personally that becomes a blow to my ego when I don't get what I want. But I also try to do my very best in the areas where my company asks me to serve and to do more than they ask and to put in more than my, we don't work eight hour days. We work 12, 14 hour days, most of the time, but I I put in my fair share and I try to let my company know what my limitations are. I don't work on Sundays but the other days of the week when my company needs me, pretty much I'm, I'm there at their service. Now, my wife and my family get part of my time as well, and uh, that's somewhat sacrosanct, but uh, when I work, I work, and I try to do the very best I can. It was not very many months after this event that I told you about that Mike Smith, we were at a company uh, event and I, 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 was, um, I, I wasn't anxious to be there, and I wasn't anxious to stay very long. It was an evening thing. It was one of those corporate events where you were expected to show up. You were expected to put in your time. Uh, the leaders had some speeches they wanted to make, and there was food. So uh, you could see people milling around, and, uh, and some were uh, building relationships, and some were sucking up. To the leaders and others were doing other things. I didn't feel the need to do any of that. I was there. Uh, I had a very short speech I had to give, and then uh, I was going to retire from the room uh, during the the meeting. During the, the the meeting was after the food, so it was right after work. So it was about six thirty, seven o'clock at night. Uh, food was uh, on the on trays on tables on the side. We went and got food. I found a sec a, a, a table that had a couple of secretaries sitting at it. I went and sat with them and uh, it was just me and these two secretaries and we were chatting and I looked up and Mike Smith is standing there. Mike Smith was the vice president general manager of the number two performing business entity within the company. And he looked down and I said, Paul, can I sit here? (laughs) Sure. Please Mike, as you are. And he sat down and within seconds there were, there were, the table was full. But people not weren't there for me. They were there for Mike, right? They wanted to be seen. Mike didn't pay any attention to anybody but me and the secretaries. He asked us what we were doing, how we're doing, what, what's going on in our lives. He was interested in us. Um, and he turned to me just as we were finishing eating, and he said, you remember the conversation we had in my office? I said, yes. He said, stand by. Something's coming up. Uh, thank you. I, you know, I um, okay. had no idea what he what he meant. But uh, a few days later, my boss walked into the office and said, um, hey, if we had a job in Singapore, would you take it? I said, yes. He said, you don't even want to know what it is? I said, well, you know, I was kind of tired of working in the office. I was working. I was bored. Um, they had had me in very honorable, very good roles. But they, they, it was clear that I was... Being kept in station, as it were, uh, but I put in my time i I quite often ended up at the office in the morning where very few people were there. Most of the lights were out when I went in, and quite often when I went home at night i was I was turning the lights out, and there were no no cars in the parking lot. Um, that was noticed, so I recommend highly that whatever job a person takes low, high in between prestigious, lack of prestige. If you do the best you can, you put in your time. You're honest, you're capable, and you're curious. Curious is a good thing. You want to learn as you go. And if you're curious, you'll see other opportunities and you'll figure out who can help you get those opportunities. That's the best advice I've ever received. If you'll do your best and take good care of the company, the company will take care of you. And I've been with this company, as you noted, for some 30 plus years in this last round of cuts, I would have expected that I would have been one of the ones that the management came to and said, Paul, don't you think it's time for you to go do something else? Something like go to the next phase of life? Actually, what happened was my boss came to me and he said, look, I I need you. Um, I've got all sorts of young, enthusiastic people and I want to keep them on staff, but I need help to give them guidance. And I need help with a stable head, stable, steady hands. Um, I took a pay cut, but I've stayed. And um, I don't know how long that will last. Probably not, not a lot longer, but I have loved being a good employee. I have loved
1: in, um providing a service to my boss to my company in general so you were basically put up for promotion um, for a job that you knew you kind of don't really want because you know you're going to get bored in a year and you were very honest in that conversation you had with mike so basically the advice is be honest in your dealings and have integrity and just be forthright with with uh, the leaders of the company on how you can really contribute to um, the company, even if it's a role that they're offering you for promotion, maybe for a bigger title, but for more money. But uh, you're honest uh, with, with that uh, because you really want to do, you really mean well for the company instead of just going into the role and one year later switch out to something else and that wouldn't be so good for the company.
0: But it well said, Andrew. I... Um... I have been saved three times by people in my company who saw goodness and felt that I was worth keeping when others were uh, viewing me as an obstacle, you know, somebody maybe below me that wanted my job and was pushing to get me out of the way so they could take a promotion. Somebody that was a peer whose behavior uh, I didn't agree with, or perhaps who, um, didn't like me and my, my methods, uh, other circumstances where people took umbrage at what I said, what I did, how I did, what I did, those sorts of things. And in those three circumstances, and perhaps maybe many more that I'm not aware of, uh, good people, leaders stepped in and said, we think you have value, we want you to stay. And they've made it worth my while and they've helped me along my way. Uh, in each case where I've been saved, I didn't ask mm. to be saved. I, and in one circumstance, I didn't know that I was under fire. And, and people literally stepped in and had me moved and removed so that, so that they could save me for another day. In another circumstance, the company was relocating one of our operations and there were a handful of us who were offered the opportunity to move to the new location. And many were not. Um, I was very young. Uh, I was very brash, very arrogant in those days. And I am embarrassingly so as I look back on it now, but, uh, they sat me down and said, contingent on these things, we want you to stay and we'll make it worth your while to stay. In the third instance, um, I knew I was under fire. Um, I had a boss who was not pleasing his boss. And as a result of that, almost anything my boss did was not good enough. And I was, um, I was an irritant because there were things that were going wrong in my part of the world, the parts that I had responsibility for that were beyond my control. And I was pushing on my boss to change them. And I didn't know that he was under as much fire as he was. And uh, therefore, I became a target for him as he was a target for his boss. And uh, uh, there were people who came in and made it possible for me to transition to a different role that allowed me to to continue to grow and, and serve my company in a way that was very useful. But it would not have it would not have been my choice to do it that way, shall we say. I would much rather have had somebody come in and pat me on the back and say, we want, we want you to go through this next. But instead, they reached in and said, come here quickly. <laughs> the house is falling sort of thing. And literally within days of my being pulled out of that organization, the organization crashed and my boss lost his job. His boss lost his job and that whole part of the company uh, became a a reformation Mm -hmm. project in which i probably would not have survived so yes do the best you can be of service have high integrity take the high road Um, i have watched many people who are climbers who are intent who they get a new job and the next thing they're doing is they're looking for the next job after that they're already planning what they're going to do next and how they're going to get there. But I, those people come and go. Uh, there are a lot of those people. And I. if a person chooses to be that way, they can. Some of those people rise very quickly and some don't. Some are very successful and some are not. But they, they tend not to last. And uh, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. There are those who would say that, uh, but let me put it this way. I was in an HR class in graduate school, where the professor said, if you've been in a job for five years, you've probably been there too long. I mean, that was his philosophy. If you've done this for five years, you should be ready to do something else by now. Um, I think there's a place for that kind of philosophy. But I think that for some of us, and I'm not talking, talking specifically about myself, but there are some of us who are really good and should be kept in place. But it, uh, back when I was in graduate school, there was a book called The Peter Principle. And that, that's probably long gone by now. But there are some people who still remember this. But Professor Peter said, my principle is this. There are people that rise to their level of incompetence, and then they don't rise anymore. And then they either have to go away or they have to go back down to where, a level where they're competent. And uh, I have seen a lot of people who have risen above their level of competence and crash and burn. And uh, I, I, I crashed and burned. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, I learned that you know, there are certain things I wasn't cut out to do. Yeah. But for a, a, a person that wants to be uh, well compensated, that wants to have a stable employment history, a person that wants to perform well and, and do well um, – put your network together, be a good worker, provide a service to your employer. And I think
1: that that will always, always come back to pay dividends. Wow. So um, your sharing has basically answered one of the questions I had, which is how do you build such a long lasting career um, in your current company? And from what I understand in your story, you, you basically stuck to your values uh, consistently over time. And people saw that, and people like that because people like a manager likes the like likes a stable pair of hands um, to help out with um, the new employees who are coming in, and they know that they can trust you. So trust is really one of the keys to build a long lasting career. Career, I believe so. Well, what else? What else do you think um, is important in building a long lasting career in a company?
0: Uh, I would say two things um, lie at the heart of of being successful over time. One is to be curious. Um, you know, we live in a fast-changing world. Um, so recognizing, st- studying, learning about technology and change and what's happening in the world around us, I think – is an invaluable thing. And that goes across the board, whatever industry one is in. But in an industry like aerospace, where the technology, it is rocket science, right? <laughs> is, uh, there are there are things which um, benefit the world because we make airplanes and we use certain technologies in airplanes and those technologies can be reused in other parts of the world. And other parts of the world, technologies can be used in our In our industry. And so understanding what's going on in the world around you, uh, what is disrupting technology? What is disrupting business? What is changing in the world around us? I think is something that we should all be aware of. Politics, business, technology, social, cultural norms, as they change, as we encounter things which puzzle us, which we don't know about, which uh, we're not familiar with, um, we should learn about those things. The second thing is a corollary to that one, and that is don't be afraid of change. I was the first employee of my company that traveled significantly that carried a laptop computer. Now, this is a long time ago, and most people in your audience will not even be aware of this, but let me just give you a short history. I started when our main mode of international communication beyond letters that went by air or sea mail was telex but we've gone from telex and fax to internet IP, uh, IT over internet and, and all sorts of wonderful things. My sense is that as the 3G has come into 4G networks and 4G will go into five, there will probably be 6G and even higher gigabyte speeds and maybe even much more than gigabytes. And we start looking at terabytes and all sorts of other things. But in our lifetime, I suspect that technology will continue to change. And if we are afraid of change and adapting to change, uh, we will be poorly served as a result of that. So being curious, keeping up with change, and then not being afraid of it, but welcoming it and, and, and challenging oneself to keep up,
1: I, uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, these are two great advice uh, to be curious and not be afraid of change. And in our current situation, I, I think the world is changing very fast. Uh, we we'll talk about working from home. Uh, we'll talk about uh, what's going to happen in the next few years. Even experts uh, are, can only make uh, predictions. Um, what, what is one change that you're most uh, curious right now that you highly recommend people look at? Um, well,
0: uh, let me speak first to my own industry and then I will speak in general. All right. Um, in my own industry, uh, what we call urban air mobility or UAV, urban, urban air vehicles, un- unmanned aerial vehicles, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the QO 10s, the, the Amazons, the, 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 um, Most. the small package you know, internet purchasing that we do today is quite often reliant on um, door-to-door delivery, right? You've got the grab drivers that come and deliver food. You've got the grab drivers that, that take us from place to place. My sense is that sometime within the next decade and maybe even much quicker than that, many of the grab drivers will be out of business and unmanned automated uh, artificial intelligent driven vehicles will be delivering packages to our front doors we 'll be delivering food we 'll be delivering us over short distances um, within the metropolitan area uh, perhaps um, you know think of think of a, a gridlocked city such as uh, Jakarta or Bangkok where you know a hundred feet in the air there 's no gridlock. So if we can get the regulatory infrastructure right, if we can get the technology right so that it's safe, so that it's efficient, um, and these are all electronically driven, they don't need fossil fuels. So they they run on batteries or in some cases, solar cells. Um, These devices can fundamentally change the way we work together, the way we go to work the way we receive our work, um, and in many cases, the way we interface with each other. So UAVs, UAM, I think is a huge change that's coming. Uh, it needs to be safe. It needs to be predictable. It needs to be regulated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those infrastructures have to catch up to the technology which already exists. Uh, needs to be proven, but I believe that that is a huge change that can fundamentally change the way we are, the way we live, the way we experience life. A, a second one is the, um, the the need that we have to preserve our earth uh, and whether you refer to it in terms of global warming, warming or in terms of the usage of fossil fuels or the mining of precious and semi-precious metals and the, and the recycling of those precious and semi-precious metals that provide the capability to communicate and to do things that we do. Um, I think that that is another area where uh, the world must and will change. And in terms of climate temperatures and climate changes in terms of of violent storms and dry periods and drought and famine and other sorts of things. are the result of the changes in our climate, um, mankind will, must rise to the challenge that is imposed upon us by the way we have treated and and manipulated and used the resources that are at our disposal. Similarly, um, there must needs be new technologies that help us to better preserve to less use and to more efficiently use the resources we have, and so whether it be in the term in terms of medicine or in terms of of energy and energy development, water is going to become a huge uh, challenge for us in the in the coming years. Keeping water clean, keeping it safe, uh, recycling it—all of that. So I just, I mean, I, the mind boggles. My mind boggles when I think of all of the. Things that need to change in order to keep the Earth a safe place to live.
1: Wow! Yeah, I think um, the the first point you mentioned about UAV unmanned um, devices that could do that could do deliveries probably is uh, happening. Uh, probably going to happen soon in in my lifetime, and probably in, in your lifetime too. And, and and the second point about renewable energy or sustainable energy is also one of the. Um, key topics uh, right now because philosophy was up uh, going to run out in 2050 or so something like that. Mm. Um, That's uh, we have to be prepared for the change. <laughs> uh, it's probably going to be a bigger change than than uh, than than you had uh, mm-hmm. just from going from uh, 18kb laptop to uh, to to what uh, uh, high tech devices we have today. As of as of right now in the current work that you do and 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 the people that you uh, coach what what is the impact that you would want to have um, on the world um
0: you know I wouldn't have said this maybe 10 or 15 years ago uh, but as I've gotten older um I really do want to be known as somebody who was uh, true to my principles, somebody who didn't take the world too seriously. In other words, I wasn't offended when somebody you know, did something that maybe disadvantaged me, that I rose above that. But of the people I coach, um, I, I would hope that they would remember me as somebody who cared, as somebody who wanted them to succeed, and somebody who was willing to go out of his way to make sure that they had the tools that they were warned when they were stepping in in the in the deep end, um, but that they were given guidance that would last them, much as Mike Smith will always be remembered be remembered by me for his words of counsel, when he could have given me a job and chose not to, and encouraged me to continue to do the best I could in the job that I was doing. You know, I'll never forget Mike for that. And the fact that he came some months later and sat down with me and those two secretaries and took a personal interest in me and said, you remember what we said? I and mean, he was a man of his word. He had, he had said, the company will take care of you if you'll do the best you can. I was busy doing that. I was bored. <laughs> and uh, he came and reminded me, and he was true to his word, Something did happen, and I was given an opportunity to go do something that I have loved uh, ever since. So um, I-, I hope that the people that I work with and that I coach, and that um, associate with me, I hope that they will be they will be kind and remember me as somebody who cared, who was true to his his word, and that who wanted to make the world a slightly better place.
1: Thank you, Paul, for sharing um, your experiences, uh, especially the story that you had with Mike. Uh, it, it it is a it is an important story to remind us that we need to be honest with ourselves and do the best that we can in whatever roles that uh, we're given. Thank you, Paul, for your thank timing. you, Andrew.
0: Yeah, uh, my pleasure. I, I've probably said way too much about way too few things, but thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you.